We're in a three-part sermon series. It's one that is taken from our communion liturgy, where at the highest, holiest part of the communion celebration uh, each month, we say, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts. Take something ordinary and do something extraordinary. The next part of that prayer says, by your Spirit, make us one with Christ and one with each other and one in ministry to all the world. Last week, we took away with us, and many of you have been practicing it this week. Some of you uh, told me this throughout the week. Others in the 845 service shared this. Some of you have messaged me. But one of the ways that we can become one with Christ is through a very simple exercise. Contemplatives have done it for for many years. If you'll take your hands and ball them up like a, a fist, it makes just that, a fist. And it says, hey, we... We've got a bone to pick, or an axe to grind, or we're mad, or we're tense, or we're clenching tightly to something. And that becomes a posture of life for us at any given moment, any given day of the week, any given month of the year. But as people of God, to experience the the presence and the power of resurrection, we need to, to slowly but surely release and to give praise. It's, it's with open hands that we can receive the sacrament of communion, not with closed fists. It's with open hands that, that I pray throughout the week, each and every week I pray just like this, inviting God's Spirit to guide me as your pastor and as a member of this community. It's with open hands that we shake and we hug. So we make this movement in life to become one with Christ by just letting go. Today, As Lucas indicates, we're going to make the the difficult shift. What does it mean to pray with courage? Make us one with each other. Are you ready? Paul tells us something about that in Ephesians chapter 4. Listen for the word of the Lord. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity in the spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us, was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Some would equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. This is the Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, there are a lot of doctors in the room right now, so I'm 
stepping outside of, uh, of my, my lane a little bit, but it's my understanding that there are 206 bones in the adult body, around 650 muscles or so, about 20 pounds of skin. There's ligaments and cartilage and miles and miles of veins and arteries. And it's my understanding that in about 30 minutes, the human body gives off enough heat to boil a gallon of water. I think we can make it in half the time in the deep south. <laughs> I hear that the higher your IQ, the more you dream. Some of you are about to be off the charts. Some women, as I understand, have a broader color spectrum than men. Some see only two or three different colors in their vision, while women have four or five of these receptors. They can see a wide range of, of colors. That's why I ask Susan how I look when I leave the house every morning. Yes. I have learned that it's impossible to tickle yourself. Did you try I tried that when I read that this week. It didn't work. It didn't work. Some of you are tickling the person next to you right now. That works. Um, finally, I've heard that when placed under a microscope, that the human tear cried from grief, and the human tear cried from hope, and the human tear cried from onions, it's all a different tear. The human body is extraordinary. Every time this magnificent choir sings, every time I hear your voices reciting the Lord's Prayer and the affirmation of faith, it, it marvels me what it takes for the mind to send a signal to the lungs and to the diaphragm to shape notes and to produce this harmonious sound. I marvel at athletics for a lot of reasons, but I've been thinking about Odell Beckham this week. He can take an 80-yard Hail Mary and pull it out of thin air with one hand. Have you seen him do this? Upside down, backwards, and with his eyes closed. How does that happen? How does muscle memory really work? The body is so fascinating to me. As I was reading this text, thinking about different gifts and different functions that people play in this wonderful world. I thought a lot about artists and how they can capture something with paint and with their imagination. They can create something out of nothing or they can be inspired by something. And I think about my time at the National Museum in Washington where for hours I would just stare <laughs> at Monet and I would stare at Rembrandt and I would give thanks to God that someone had such a talent. I think about the symphonies, the great symphonies and the great operas of this world. I think about Mozart and Puccini, Chopin and others. How does that, how does that happen? There was a conductor one time who was conducting a rehearsal at a local symphony, and there were several dozen instruments that were playing all at one time, and the harmony was great, and they were going over the, the musical score, and you had the percussions doing their thing, and the woodwinds, and the brass, and the strings, and everything was coming along, and then all of a sudden, the conductor said, stop! I don't hear the, the piccolo. Where's the, the little piccolo in all of this? And that, that story reminds me that we're part of a great orchestra, 
that some of us are strings and some of us are clanging cymbals, <laughs> and some are the upright bass, and some are the electric instruments that work their way into a symphony, and some might think you're a piccolo, but every part works together to create a beautiful, beautiful sound. Modern engineers, you know, they struggle to create a system that's even remotely close to performing at the level of the human body or the human body. And so isn't it interesting that Paul, some 2,000 years ago, uses the human body as his metaphor of choice to describe who we are as Christians and how we're called to function. We are a body, but we're not just any body. We're more than some body. We are the body. We are the body of Christ. And what that means to be made one with Christ and one with each other is there's no such thing as a solo or, or independent Christian. We are designed, called forth from the waters of baptism, put together with the power of the Holy Spirit to work with others, to live with others. The first important step to Salvation is accepting Jesus Christ as one's personal Lord and, and Savior, and what a joyful celebration that is. I'm also interested when somebody takes that step to then make a corporate or a communal profession of Jesus Christ, to allow the body of Christ and the Spirit of Christ to save us together. I mentioned <clears throat> earlier how there's like 206 bones in the body. I think we start out at birth with more bones than that, and over time uh, we don't lose bones, but bones grow together, especially in the weak places or where there may be pressure points. I just wonder if Paul had that in mind when he's thinking about you are the body. And in your, your weak places and your vulnerable places, that's where you grow together and you become strong. Another part of our communion liturgy says that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again not to confess that Christ is somehow absent right now, absolutely not, but to acknowledge that the Spirit of Christ lives in the body of believers, that you and I and Christians all over this world are the hands and the feet and the voices and the minds and the eyes and the ears, and we're all called to be the body, to go out into the world and bear witness to all the marvelous things that God is doing that forgiveness matters, that reconciliation over time can happen, that love wins, that hope and faith are not idealistic, but they're as real and as tangible as the person you were trying to hide yourself from tickling earlier. Not a single one of us here get to say that we don't need each other because we all need each other. I love the theology of, of our pews. Oftentimes when we give tours to new members, to visitors, to our confirmation class, to our second graders who are going through a worship course, we use the sanctuary uh, to teach us. And you know it's shaped like an upside-down boat, but I love the theology of pews. You know why? Because we're all lined up together as if we're rowing for a common goal in the same direction. 
and you need that person next to you doing her job or his job, and that person needs you. And when we're not here, we can't be here, we bear one another's burdens, and we carry that load together. Paul says, live a life worthy of your calling. That calling comes from the waters of our baptism. That calling means that we get to be a part of the family of God, that, that we get to be together in this life. And I think that means that we need to see each other on Sunday mornings because it's through the handshakes and the hugs and the high fives and the low fives from Football Saturday, <laughs> from the sharing of something as simple as coffee or the singing of hymns or the breaking of bread through the corporate recitation of baptismal vows and membership vows, we're reminded of the real presence of Jesus Christ working here among us and through us and in us and even in spite of us. But that work doesn't stop on Sundays because the question that we have to ask is how are we willing as the body of Christ to turn ourselves inside out? And each week when these acolytes take the cross of Christ and the light of Christ, what we're doing is we're coming down and out a common aisle like we came in and we're following the cross of Jesus Christ out into the world. We're following, literally, the light of Christ out into this dark world. So it takes courage. It takes courage to pray by your Spirit, make us one with that Christ, and then make us one with each other so that we can serve the world, so that we can remind the world that there's more to life than, than bills and, and debt and brokenness and distrust and disturbing headlines, that there is good news. Christ has overcome all things. We are the body of Christ, individual members of it, but we are the body of Christ, and we need each other. And this world needs us just like we need this world, and we cannot be who we were created to be unless we see that by the power of the resurrected Christ that we are one with each other. A few years ago, I was attending seminary at Candler School of Theology at Emory in Atlanta, and there was a group of us, about, I don't know, eight or ten of us who uh, were serving churches all over the, the southeast, from Georgia, from Florida, Tennessee, North Alabama, our conference, and, and we would converge on Tuesdays and Thursdays and battle it out, and over lunch, uh, we would do theology and, and check in with each other and share best, best practices as student pastors. Well. There was a cold front moving through on that particular day, and the weather was really about to change. It was about to start sleeting. It was borderline snow. And so we decided we would stay on campus for lunch instead of going off campus. And what we discovered is that one of our professors was going to do the same and, and would treat some of the students for lunch by catering a meal from one of my favorite breakfast places. It's called the Flying Biscuit. You can put that in the sermon notes section of your bulletin. What we would do is we would place our orders and they would deliver it and we would feast. Woo. Uh, so one of the things that I love about Emory is that people from all over the world come there to study and to train and it's a remarkable academic hub in that way. We had people from, from Africa and from Germany and from Central and South America, Pacific Northwest, all over this country and we had those who were from uh, the North part of this country. 
They weren't quite as learned in the ways of Southern traditions, namely food preferences. And so <clears throat> their food wasn't, you know, golden crispy fried at every turn of the corner. They didn't know what to think when we told them that ranch was just an automatic side dish that came with everything at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So it was one of our northern friends and colleagues who placed the order for our meal. So the first thing that was happening in that whole conversation is that it was lunchtime, but we were ordering breakfast. So that threw off things a little bit. We assured this charming uh, northern young lady that we can eat biscuits and bacon at any meal. Amen? I mean, we, that's what we do. So we placed our orders. We dialed the number. We put them on speed dial, and, and everybody was kind of placing their orders. And it came time for this nice young girl to place her order. And she says to the person on the other end of the flying biscuit phone, I'll have a plain biscuit with organic spread, no butter, and dehydrated turkey bacon if you have it. <clears throat> no, ma'am, we don't have that kind of meat down here. <clears throat> and did you say no butter? Uh, that's what I said. So I'll just take a plain biscuit with either some cilantro or, or something green. Well, ma'am, that comes with hash brown or grits, and none of those are green. So which one would you like? And she said, well, what's a grit? I'll try one of those. <laughs> On the other end of the phone was a very charming southern belle of an employee who in true southern form and perfect southern charm and dialect said, ma'am, I don't know where you're from, but you can't just get one grit. They come in a big bowl together. <laughs> and in that moment, friends, I think I began to understand something about the Christian faith. Actually, I thought Jesus was on his way back at that moment, but it sounds so odd when somebody says, what's a grit, right? It's like saying, what is a standalone Christian? It doesn't work that way. Grits and Christians, they come together. <laughs> they work better that way. Grits come in a bowl. That's how God made us too, except we don't, we don't actually call it a bowl. We call it a, a font. And it's from the font of baptism that we figure out how to stick together. <laughs> There's no such thing as a solo Christian. We're designed to be together and to work together and to study together and to serve together. And as Paul says in his letter, to bear one another's burdens because that's what grits do. <laughs> we sacrifice for each other. And what it means to bear one another's burdens is that when the person in the pew next to you or in front of you or beside you or in your Sunday school class, when they call you at 2 o'clock to say, hey, I'm headed to the ER with my wife or my child or, or my parent. Will you come meet me? You say, I'll be there. I'll be there. Bearing one another's burdens is to watch each other's children so that another couple can have a date night with their spouse. It's to teach children and youth in Sunday school so that their parents can finally attend a Sunday school class for themselves. Bearing one another means that there's nothing so murky or dirty or sticky in another person's life that we're not willing to get involved in that, in that life. Paul isn't saying that life is going to be all warm and, and fuzzy, but he is saying, take care of each other. You're called to be a new community, a new faith, a new humanity, 
a new residential community called the church. And what I believe is that your neighborhood dues have been paid by the blood of Jesus Christ, and that's how we're bound together as well. Unity in the Spirit through the bond of peace. So every day I want to ask you, are you daring enough to pray, Lord, by your Spirit, make us one with Christ and help me to let go of something and give something as a sign of solidarity with Jesus Christ? But are you willing to say, make me one with each other as well? Because somebody needs you, and you need somebody. St. Teresa's words are helpful. They always are. She said, Christ has no body but your body, no hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks with compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses this world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes. You are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. That's what it means to be a bunch of grits getting through life together. I ran across a story about a U.S. Navy man named Charlie Plum. Have you heard the story about Charlie Plum? He was a jet fighter in Vietnam. He fought uh, some 75 combat missions, and his plane was destroyed by a surface-to-air missile. He hit the eject button, and he parachuted directly into enemy hands. And he spent six years, I think it was, as a POW behind enemy lines. But he survived that ordeal, and, and now he, he lectures and he teaches uh, about what he learned from that experience. Well, one day, uh, Plum and his wife were sitting in a restaurant, and there was a man that, that got up and he came over to him. Uh, he started approaching Charlie and his wife, and he said, You're Plum! He said, Yeah. You flew jet fighters in Vietnam from the aircraft carrier called Kitty Hawk, and you were shot down. And he said, yeah? How in the world did you know that? And this man said, I packed your parachute. Plum just gasped in surprise and, and in gratitude, and the man pumped his hand. He said, I guess it worked. <laughs> he said, it sure did. If you hadn't packed my parachute, I wouldn't be here today. Well, that night, Plum says that he couldn't sleep. He was thinking about that man, and he says, I kept wondering what that man would have looked like so many years ago in a Navy uniform with the hat and the bib and the bell-bottom trousers, and I wondered how many times I might have passed that man on the, the Kitty Hawk, and I wondered if I might have even seen him and said, good morning, how are you, or if anything, because, you know, I was a fighter pilot, and he was just a parachute-packing sailor. Plum thought of the many hours the sailor had spent on the long wooden table down in the bowels of the ship, carefully weaving shrouds and folding the silk uh, of each chute and, and holding in his hands the fate of somebody that he would probably never, ever meet. It's a moment of trust and sacrifice for sure. And so now when Plum is, is talking to audiences and such, he starts by saying, who's packing your parachute? And the idea is that uh, everyone needs somebody to help them make it through the day, that you need the person sitting next to you and in front of you, behind you, 
the people watching right now on live stream and WSFA, that you need people in your lives too. And we'd love to be the congregation that you need us to be because we care about you. God loves you and, and so do we. So if there's anything to learn about being made one with Christ, it's, it's learning how to let go. If there's anything to learn about being made one with each other, it's, it's taking a, a step maybe of humility or of gratitude knowing that every job that is done in the body of Christ is equally important. So I want to ask you, your takeaway this week is, is an assignment. Keep praying this way, but this, way, this week do something different. I want you to write two notes of encouragement this week. I want you to write a note of encouragement to somebody you deem is in high authority. And I want you to just tell that person, hey, I, I know you've got a lot of pressure. You're under a lot of stress. You have a lot of responsibility. I just want you to know you're prayed for. And then I want you to write a, an equal note to somebody who's oftentimes overlooked, who's doing the work that goes unnoticed. I want you to write them a note too and say, hey, you're, you're of value too in God's eyes and in ours. Because here's the thing, whether you're on top of the world or the bottom of the world, wherever you are in life, God's grace is sufficient for you. And you are enough. So what would it look like if the body of Christ took a step forward right now at First United Methodist Church and we, we wrote a note, just a simple note to say, you are loved, you are valued, thank you for doing what you do. Friends, you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. In just a moment, we're going to sing. We're going to follow the cross. We're going to follow the light of Christ out into the world. Bind yourself to the Spirit and to each other and make a difference this week. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.